Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, it's Work With Purpose with a difference. Today, we speak to the leaders of a number of Canberra's cultural institutions and examine how those cultural institutions have adapted to the challenges and opportunities of 2020. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's special edition of Work With Purpose, which features an event from the IPA Future Leaders Committee designed with an expert panel who will focus on today's topic, which is 2020, a year of looking back and also moving forward. This event was to have been part of the Future Leaders series. However, COVID has allowed us to think about different ways we can share what's important to us as a cohort. And we thought the panel's discussion may be inspiring for a wider membership. So I'm looking forward to sharing today's discussion with you all, coming to you from the IPA studio in Barton. My name is Megan Aponte-Payne, and I'm an assistant director at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, as well as a member of the IPA Future Leaders Committee. I feel very lucky to be here today to represent the committee and to share my thoughts, as well as to hear from these leaders personally about how they are leading the APS. I'd like to start today with an acknowledgement uh, of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land in which we are meeting. We acknowledge and respect the, their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of the city and the region. I would like to acknowledge and welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who might be tuning into today's event. I'd also like to acknowledge my fellow co-host, Michael Sinise, who's a manager of people and organisation consulting at PwC, and also an IPA ACT Future Leaders Committee member. I'd also like to welcome our three guests today. Dr. Mari Louisez, who is Director General at the National Library of Australia. Dr. Matthew Trinker, AM, who is Director at the National Museum of Australia. And Dr. Rachel Coglin, who's CEO and Artistic Director of Craft ACT, Craft and Design Canberra Festival. Now a little bit about each of our guests. Dr. Marie-Louis Ayres was appointed the Director General of the National Library of Australia in March 2017, having joined the library in 2002. Prior to this, she was a curator for the Australian Defence Force Academy's collection of Australian literary manuscripts. Her work has always been centred on providing digital access to the cultural history of Australia and addressing the challenges of preserving born digital content, particularly challenging at the moment. Murray is also a chair of the National and State Libraries Australia. She was awarded her PhD from the Australian National University in 1994. Dr Matt Trinker, AM, started his career at the Western Australian Museum in Perth in 2001 as the Museum Link Program Manager. He then joined the National Museum in Canberra in 2003 as a Senior Curator and Assistant Director before being appointed as the Director in 2014, a position he has held since then. Matthew advocates for close collaboration among institutions across the cultural sector and beyond. And for this, he was made a member of the Order of Australia earlier this year. Matt was awarded his PhD in History from the University of Sydney and is also a graduate of the University of Western Australia. 
Dr. Rachel Coughlin is the CEO and Artistic Director at Craft ACT, Craft and Design Centre, which is a not-for-profit organisation for the development of visual art, craft and design in Australia. Rachel has extensive experience in senior strategic roles in various national cultural institutions, including the National Arboretum in Canberra, the National Museum of Australia, Old Parliament House and the National Portrait Gallery done it all. <laughs> Rachel also has a PhD, which she was awarded from the Australian National University in 2018. So we've got some very talented people with us today. <laughs> Welcome to you all. Uh, at this stage, I'll hand over to Michael, who will begin our proceedings today. Thanks, Megan. Um, as, uh, as she mentioned, my name is Michael Sinise and I'm a, a people and organisation consultant specialising on government and public sector um, workforce matters and fellow member of the IPA Future Leaders Committee. I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be here today um, to hear about some of our local and national treasures and how you've responded to some of the events that 2020 has thrown at all of us um, and also hear about some of your leadership journeys throughout, um, you know, as we all know, an unprecedented year. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, the Future Leaders Committee has been incredibly excited to get the perspective from um, this part of our community. So um, welcome and I look forward to hearing all about it. So welcome, Marie, Louise, Matthew and Rachel. Firstly, I'd like to invite each of you to share some opening reflections on how you're looking ahead after the year that's been. You're welcome to share either personal reflections or reflections on behalf of your organisation. Marie-Louise, might you like to begin? Um, I would say despite the difficulties of this year, nothing has changed about our strategic purpose. Um, so in some senses, it's very much about continuing on a track that the library has been on for some decades. And that track is uh, about uh, making sure that our collection is accessible to as many people as possible. Um, just give you a little indication there, even pre-COVID, for every person that walked in our physical doors, 75 visited us digitally. Um, over the last year, it was one to 90. So we'll continue down that strategic direction as an organisation. It has, however, made us, um, I think, think more carefully about how we can best do that. And it's given us an opportunity to think really carefully about who we're serving and to dig deeper, double down on making sure that we are collecting from the full diversity of the Australian population and connecting with the full diversity of the population. So I would actually say nothing has changed in our strategic purpose, except that it's allowed us to focus on that sense of serving beyond Canberra. Yeah, wonderful reflections. And I think that's been a shared sentiment. You know, we've had the time to reflect and truly think about our purpose. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a really great way to open today. Um, Matthew? Yeah, just picking up at one, what uh, Murray-Louise has said, I, I think that there's no doubt it's been a year like no other. You know, the, the year began with, you know, Canberra admired in the smoke from the bushfires. I think we had hail and... Uh, and heavy rain in February, which was welcome, but was a, was a great change from where we've been. And coping with that, and I suppose a summer uh, like no other in Australian experience, quite frankly, um, might have we might have hoped coming out of that that we'd had some time to pause and reflect on what we'd just been through. And in fact, we were thrown into this crisis that now is not just a crisis we're facing, but a global one. So I do agree. I think that in many ways, um, 
the fundamentals of our business have become important again for all of our institutions, organisations. Um, but there's no doubt that thought about that, thinking about it has become ever more important. And I was struck by what Mary Louise said about thinking through then how to discharge a sense of mission uh, in this environment. And if I had to choose a character for this year, it's about just the, the close attention that we've had to give to almost everything that we've considered this year and the capacity for thought, not just in our organisation, but as a community and indeed beyond you know, these shores, the capacity of us to think through what's happening and try and address those issues you know, rationally, analytically, consciously, but with some warmth and emotion for people, for our people and for people outside our organisations. I think that's been um, uppermost in my mind. It's been what has carried us through this year. Yeah, that's a really great sentiment. I think I'll carry some of those thoughts mm. and then when we start to unpack some of your leadership traits and, and how you did um, spend time reflecting and thinking about your kind of workforce. And as we managed not just COVID, as you mentioned, but all those other things that were thrown at Canberra mm. um, throughout the year. So lastly, um, Rachel. I guess, um, you know, absolutely, we've stayed true to our mission and, and possibly developed a deeper understanding of it. But the emotion that I'm left with right now is just extraordinary gratitude, which seems odd after such an intensely challenging year. But I think that I feel grateful for the community I serve, which is contemporary craft artists and makers and artists. They've had a very hard year and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have supported them and, and helped them sustain their practice and, and feel connected to something bigger than themselves in a very difficult year. I feel grateful for my team. Um, we're a small um, arts organisation and um, recent studies have shown that actually small to medium arts organisations in Australia are actually in many ways outperforming the bigger ones. Um, we have larger and faster growing audiences than the, the larger organisations. And to some extent, small was beautiful in 2020. Being small, we were able, you know, pivot the word we're all trying to avoid. Um, <laughs> we were able to move very quickly in and out those different stages in a way that's much harder when you've got several hundred staff members and things. So we were able to close down, you know, on the day we had to close, we were able to open up the next working day that we were able to, and we had a really clear COVID plan of how we're going to do it, but we were grounded in a belief of what our mission was and who we were there to serve, which is our members. As a membership organisation, you have just such a clear sense of who you're serving. And I, I see that as an enormous privilege to be able to serve my membership. In terms of how I'm looking ahead, we're 10 days out from the Design Canberra Festival, <laughs> and I wish I was I had a bit more of a long-term vision right now, but I have very long lists for each of those 10 days, and I'm I'm grateful also that that festival can proceed. There was a long period of time where there was a dark cloud hanging over that festival. And um, we checked in with our community to see what they wanted us to do. And they urged us to proceed. They said, please, we need some good news to look forward to. <laughs> we need some opportunities. We, you know, and it's just been really wonderful. So I just feel an enormous sense of gratitude in this very difficult year. Yeah, that's that's a really nice way to kind of close the opening remarks mm -hmm. from all three of you. I think what I'm hearing is that the listening to the community and listening to the people is incredibly important um, as we, uh, you know, navigate whatever's next and, you know, where we actually want to spend our time fo focusing on, you know, the, the limited time that we have, um, you know, with ourselves and within in the community. So I might just pass back to Megan um, as we kind of explore the next part of today's discussion. Thanks, Michael. And what I thought was really interesting from your opening remarks were you reflected on both more time 
to think, but also having to respond really quickly. Mm. And it's really interesting that those two have in some ways been able to come together because I think my personal experience in the public service where I am is we have just been constantly responding. And I think only now we are starting to do the thinking about what it means next. And I think we will we'll come to this, that's probably the, the culmination of our discussion. But I did want to start today firstly by acknowledging that, so the IPA Future Leaders Committee uh, curates the, the Future Leaders Program. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to encourage future leaders to think about innovative ways to work. And so at risk of using the word pivoting again, <laughs> I did want to ask you, particularly in the areas that you work, because you do, I mean, Marie-Louise, it's very interesting to hear that you already had 75 people using online resources to, to one in person, but I guess the arts in particular are generally objects and they generally involve people interacting with them. So I'm interested to hear from you about how you've used maybe technology or innovative ways to adapt to COVID restrictions through this period. I'm actually going to come and just take issue with something that sure. you said because <laughs> um, actually you're characterising this broad church of arts and culture actually as if it is all about the physical um, and that is wonderful and we have huge physical collections, 270 kilometres of physical collections but um, you know for, for us as a national library and for big libraries around the country, that's not really the case. Um, so our, our collections are digital, our access methods, uh, methods are very digital. But what we really missed this year with the doors closed, and my colleagues here know I cried when we closed the doors, is the sense of vitality that comes when you're right in touch with people who are seeing and using your collections in the flesh where you've got that super human thing going on. And that's, um, although I think we've all done a really good job mm. at conveying, we've talked to here about warmth, emotion and gratitude. Mm. And I think we've probably seen our colleagues, seen ourselves conveying that in the digital realm through, you know, webinars, curator talks, all of those things. Um, but it is fabulous having people back in the building and having that sense of physically shared humanity. Mm. So it's, um, I wouldn't want to have our doors closed forever oh. because we'd lose that sense of connection and mm. vitality. And that sounds like that's the message you've received, Rachel, as well. Look, I think it's um, it's a really interesting um, experience this year and, and we all have different resources to be able to respond to these opportunities. We, I made a decision really early that I would continue with our exhibition program even when we closed and that was a little bit contentious. So we have um, exhibitions that last for about five weeks and then we have a five-day turnover so we have a really intense changing mm. exhibition program. Artists have usually worked on that those exhibitions for a couple of years beforehand. And a lot of organisations equivalent to me, they close their doors and they've deferred their programs. We realised there were a number of really not great consequences of doing that. Um, one is, and this is when we talk about reflecting on our mission, mm. We would probably say exhibitions were a core part of what we do, but actually it's what they represented that was much yeah. more important. So artists, um, in a way, they need to account for their time. 
So um, they need to, to be able to get a future opportunity. They need to show that they did an exhibition here. They got a residency here. They got a commission here. They need to show their CV grows and evolves and expands. They need to have visual evidence of that. And while the exhibition is a great way and it's a kind of shorthand for showing that there's artistic excellence and peer review, it's not the only thing. So we were able to shut our doors. We did install the exhibition. We shut our doors and then we learned very, very quickly from home, thanks to lots of Googling, how to do our own um, videos and how to do e-catalogues and we set up a brand new online shop and all these things that we had actually talked about doing for quite some time I'll concede but we're a small organization mm -hmm. and we didn't have the resources but it gave us a beautiful gift which was time to develop these new assets and to break down what's important an example I'll give is you know exhibitions usually a great part of that is you have an opening event and it's where we come together we're, we're a really community focused organization mm -hmm. it's about relationships at its heart so you have someone who writes an, edit, um, an essay for the exhibition and they tend to speak at the opening. That's part of what we do. That would probably mean you're likely to go with writers who are in Canberra, maybe Sydney. So it's a, it's a pool that you can define. What we've been able to do mm. through this brave new world is reach out anywhere in the world. So um, we've got an exhibition opening tonight, our annual member show of more than 70 artists, absolutely beautiful. And we were able to get one of the world's leading contemporary craft curators and writers, Glenn Adamson, who actually is an American but based in England, to write our essay. Mm. We were then able to do a Zoom video and we've recorded that. I mean, we would not have even considered that six months ago. Mm. And they're the gifts that we got through this process. I do worry that um, there will be a growing disparity because, you know, if you look around this room, there's quite a lot of work in doing these sorts of um, offer, you know, digital opportunities at a high level, and we don't have those resources. And I'd be really interested at some point to talk to Marie Louise about, you know, how do we kind of democratise some of that digitisation because it is expensive, mm. um, but it is obviously incredibly important for creative organisations. So, do you envisage a world going forward where you would almost have those dual pieces of work, both an in-person exhibition and the online aspect? That's what we've done. So mm. we continued to install and deinstall our exhibitions, and you know. We are about objects, unashamedly, <laughs> and um, I'm yet to see a digitisation of an object that is equivalent to seeing it in real life. You know, the materiality, the craftsmanship, you know, or, or you just, there's some really interesting and quite expensive ways of capturing that digitally, but it's, there's nothing that replicates the opportunity to do it in person. But also, again, the relationships of seeing it in person, meeting the artist, etc. But those two lines of interpretation and um, creating enduring content means that it lives on much longer, which means that our contribution to our members is far greater than what we could have previously done. So they'll continue to go side by side moving mm -hmm. forward. And Matt, has your experience been similar? Yeah, look, I think that that's a good point that Rachel makes about the essential distinction of the sort of, sorts of things that we do. Even if the focus of all the three places that we are working in is quite different, the sense of material um, character to the things that are, that are in our collections or on display gives the way we introduce people to ideas, which is really what connects all three organisations, it gives them a particular way into those ideas. And that's there's no doubt in the thinking that we've done this year that has um, surfaced again, as Murray Lloyd has pointed to, as a kind of the prime distinguishing characteristic of a, of a museum in our case. Mm. So this is our centre of our mission, really. 
But it's true also that this world has shown us that you can engage people and actually in a, in a kind of reciprocity between the material world and the virtual, rather than thinking of them as distinctions, rather than thinking of them as, as separated in some way. The example, you know, for us was, you know, in late March when we closed the doors and got our staff home and, you know, working digitally, we were two weeks away from opening a major exhibition we'd invested $3 million in, courtesy of the Australian government, um, relating the story of this 250th anniversary of uh, Cook's voyage in the endeavour, celebrated um, founding moment of nation, um, conventionally thought of at least. And this exhibition was to tell the view from the shore, the view from the perspective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, as well as recommitting us to that narrative we know so well from um, the journals that Cook and Banks and others left behind. It's a massive piece of work, a lot of investment with communities up and down Australia's east coast, and indeed with institutions, you know, Mary Louise has been a very generous supporter of that through line of collection. And suddenly we, we couldn't open that exhibition, you know, that was due two weeks, um, of, you know, uh, in the future from when we closed. And what we had to do was think about the material we already had online and augment it and think about you know, that is a terrible word, pivot, but let's say <laughs> we turned quickly to the question of recommitting all that content online. And of course, modern exhibitions of the sort that the museum makes now include a lot of digital content as a physical experience in the show. So we had wonderful resources, including a fabulous film called The Message that had been made by uh, a very great um, Aboriginal um, uh, woman, filmmaker, um, Alison Page, uh, really about constructing that vision, um, a notional vision of what life must have been like on shore at the time of Cook and Banks and others sailing on the coast. And the capacity to bring that to an audience was so important for our publics and for those communities we'd worked with, but also for our people. You know, they were so delighted that in the midst of all of this, we're able to find a way and do what we do um, best, which is engage people in ideas that matter to them, that will say something something to them about their lives in this country. I mean, after all, that's why we exist. We exist for public service. And I was very struck at the time at how um, both affirming it was for our audiences at a difficult time when they were all home as well, if you remember, and also for our staff mm. who, in a way we're allowed to recommit to the, the core mission of the museum through the work. I think that's that's so important. And Michael's going to uh, lead us into the next part of the conversation, which is exactly about workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on it, uh, Marie-Louise, the physically shared humanity. And I think, you know, that comes from, you know, the community engaging with, um, you know, our, our passion and our purpose, but also the workforce element. All three of you touched on that moment. You know, you shared your emotional story that, that when the doors closed, you know, you, you broke a tear and, you know, the, the way that your organisations were about able to pivot. I'm um, very interested in understanding some of the, the leadership kind of approaches in, in managing your workforce during uh, a hugely um, ambiguous and scary point, particularly if you if I can take you back to that day that you did have to close, and how you you connected and and maintained your staff morale and and ingenuity and innovation throughout this period. I'll start um, with you, Rachel. You know, there was a, a proud moment you said before. Not 
um, I think what um, I guess I'm CEO of a small organisation, very, very small organisation. So I am not only um, the artistic director and managing a team, I'm the um, chief finance officer and I'm the IT director and I'm the <laughs> HR manager and all, you know, there's, you know, I'll put you through and it's still me. Um, <laughs> and um, what that meant is in that very intense time where you're seeing these COVID cases rising around the world and we were meant to be going to Milan Design Week because we had an exhibition yeah. going there, a lot going on. I had to learn really quickly about the COVID stages and what we were going to do. I had to learn about financial opportunities to help fund um, my organisation to make sure I could keep employing my staff. So it was a really intense time and we spent a lot of time just getting a really clear framework so we knew whenever things tightened up or loosened up, we, were, we knew what we had to do. And I have a strong belief that it's important to have the house in order so that then you can be creative and pursue you know, your vision. And so we had that in place, which was all very clear. And then it struck me that one of the most important jobs I was going to have in lockdown was managing the mental health health of my team. Um, because we're a small team, we, have, we occasionally have meetings, but often we're just talking through walls and chatting and, you know, you're overhearing conversations and we're, you know, we're really close. I'm really lucky that, you know, we kept saying we're so lucky that we had such a gorgeous team to be in lockdown with together. But I ended up Googling, researching, I love researching and writing, and you know, how can I support people working from home? And someone suggested that you have a daily check-in call and you ask people, the first question is, what are you grateful for? And so we would go around and 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 that was really good because everyone responded very differently. I am a painful optimist, so I tend <laughs> to see silver linings, but shockingly, not everyone is <laughs> like that. Um, and it was a way of really taking the temperature of the team. You could tell everyone would come up with something, but you could tell when someone actually wasn't having a great day. And that meant that I'd chase them up later and have a little chat, and, you know, suggest some strategies on how we can work together. Um, and so I felt that actually managing mental health and, and well-being was as important as finding out how we make videos and online shops and everything else that we had to do. And we were all on a very steep learning curve. So I was learning, they were learning, and we were going, let's just give it a go and see what happens. Um, of course, we managed the risk to our organisation, but we were also happy to just try radically different things, and that worked. One of the things that happened, um, which I had not anticipated, is that, you know, a couple of my younger staff members were living in group houses. They didn't have great Wi-Fi. That's a really distracting and very hard environment to do your work in. And so, in fact, when things were opening up again, there was an overwhelming um, message from my team of, we're going back to work. Like, you can stay at home, Rachel, but we're going back in because it was just so hard for them to do the work. And I think that's something to be really mindful of, again, in the disparity. You know, we went home, we worked on the laptops we already owned. We didn't, no one issued us a new laptop. No one, you know, provided Wi-Fi. So you had what you had. We didn't have a new desk to sit on. This is the, the difference between kind of community arts sector versus some other organisations. But um, I think just checking in on people and, and remaining connected was the most important role that I had during lockdown. Yeah, that kind of raw connectivity, and yeah. that's, really, that's really great. Yeah. Marie-Louise, I'll, I'll, I'll pivot over to yourself. Uh, well, because we've got hundreds of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but we were able to, um, through the magic and ingenuity of our digital team, have everybody working from home almost immediately. Um, but of course, that meant people working you know, weeks literally around the clock. Um, unlike some other agencies, yeah, we couldn't issue, you know, we didn't have laptops to hand out either. You just had to deal with what you were dealing with. Um, look, I think at a personal level, probably one of the most important things that, that I did 
um, and, and it wasn't my idea, and all good ideas come from your team, is that over that entire period, I've you know sent a weekly email that's got the instructional, here's what you need to know, and I've done a weekly video, learned how to do it myself at home, <laughs> um, and I've continued that, that that is more around the kind of human element, how are we going here? And I think that served us quite well because um, in ordinary times, I'd say I'm not the kind of leader who's always running around the building at high speed saying, hi, hi, what are you up to? So you had to change that. So that worked quite well. Um, you mentioned being really grateful for your team before. Um, I just have never been more grateful for my executive team who none of us have ever worked so hard. Nobody, everybody was just on the same mission, just got on. We all kind of carved up what we needed to do and that was really important. And Matt would probably also feel that particularly when you're in the larger institutions, having your tribe of um, people who are like you um, is really, really important. So the heads of the cultural institutions in Canberra, we were on the phone, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, my colleagues at the state libraries, state and territory libraries, it's just been all year, what are you doing? You're chatting to your, your you know, mate who's heading up the British Library. So I think that was really important too, to keep checking in with others, not just about how you're getting your work done, how you're serving the public, but precisely what you're talking about, how are your people going? As time goes on, how tired are they getting? Um, being very conscious, as you just mentioned, you know, I was working at home in Canberra in a big house with one other person, quite a nice dog, nice <laughs> garden, you know, Mount Ainsley out the back. Many of my colleagues were working in small houses with three kids being schooled at home. Um, some of them just by the way things that happened had serious illnesses, really serious things happened this year. So I think being really super attentive to those human things was very, very important. Um, you know, I said I shed tears when we closed the library, but I tell you there's been a few times too where you just think about somebody in your midst, in your community, who's having to deal with something else on top of what the organisation is, and it's not fair and there's not much you can do about it. That's probably been my lowest moments, actually, where you wish you could lift a burden for somebody and you can't. It's tough. I mean, Mary Louise is right. You know, really, there was this, a great sense of um, uh, mutual support, yeah. I suppose, and solidarity amongst the heads of the major um, national institutions. We were fortunate, you know, to, to have that. And I think if you if you had to take, you know, what we've heard together with, you know, what our about to say, I suppose the, the enduring theme is that that in all this extraordinary moment of getting staff home in the space of days, 250 people in our case, you know, a few fewer than um, Murray-Louise, but not many, as complex in some ways, and getting them working at home on Teams and other digital tools within days, so that by the end of the week, we felt we were a functioning organisation with everybody at home. That was huge. And the only way it happened was about the quality of communication. That we had with our people, and also how we were thinking through what they were going to need over the course of the, you know, the, the subsequent weeks. We did much the same sort of thing. I was, I'm still doing weekly um, directors' broadcasts, all team meetings through Teams, and uh, the executive met every morning at 8:30 uh, via Teams just to discuss, okay, what's ahead today. The decision-making horizon just came incredibly down to hourly, you know, and daily preoccupations, uh, especially in the early part of the lockdown. 
and uh, and it didn't let up and it was uh, sort of very intense and you felt a need at least we felt a need to communicate as honestly and as transparently as we could to people so many people were worried so you get home wondering we all wondered what was coming next uh, me included to be frank and what people needed was that communication to be present but they also needed to believe in it they needed to know it had real integrity that you were giving it as unadorned as you could but not in a way that was alarmist in a way that actually made them feel secure this was being thought through their interests were being served and so were the public's interests and I, if i had to think about a single thing that i take from this year you knew it before but this has been the 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 proof of the fact that there is no substitute in leadership for active communication and for displaying your integrity and the integrity of the organization and and the reliance on your great executive I'm, I'm astonished by what my um, senior leadership was able to do this year and how they worked collaboratively but um, autonomously when they needed to and right through the organization you saw people adopting change in a way you'd never see normally and I think that's been a character not just of my organization but probably all of us and uh, and the broader public sector Matt, you just talked about integrity and um, I couldn't agree more. And that's not the same as being able to give people what they want or what they want to hear. And uh, certainly in the COVID environment, um, many people in the community and many people in our community of colleagues wanted way more certainty than we could give them. Um, and that's where I think it's most important is to be upfront about what certainty you have and what you don't have. Um, in our case, as well as the natural disasters and the entire roof of the library was destroyed and has to be replaced, we were also partway through a top to bottom whole of library restructure. Yeah. And that has continued. And it's a similar track where people want absolute certainty and all you can give them is the certainty of your integrity. Mm and that when you can tell people when you have clarity, you'll convey it and that you'll be accountable and you'll be transparent. So it's really the same lessons going through, um, but it doesn't always meet the needs of people who just want to know what's happening next and where we simply can't provide it. I think that as we head into next year, where we don't know what the year is bringing, we cannot know what more climate catastrophes or more pandemics or more whatever, I think that that's something that really each individual needs to grapple with is the extent to which you can live with uncertainty. But as a leader, you have to be crystal clear about what's above the line for certainty and what is just really murky and might become clearer a bit later on. Yeah, you mentioned earlier as well, you know, you had a strategic vision and um, you, you knew your course and I, I read about the, the kind of the shifts that the your institution was facing. Um, did you find at any point you had to pivot or, or refocus on one more than the other or you kind of said, no, this is, we're on this journey and, and I know we've had some things thrown at us now, but how did you kind of manage the, the shifting priorities from the immediate well-being of needs to where the organisation needed to be for the future? 
Um, look, I mean, obviously there's some things, we'll all have left things behind that we had planned to get done over the year okay. where you say that's just not going to happen and we'll have to think differently about it. Um, I, I think that, um, look, at a practical level for our restructure, we would have wanted it done faster. Would you ever embark on something like this if you knew any of this was going to happen? You wouldn't, <laughs> but we had. <laughs> I'd like that to be over faster because that's causing um, you know, existential angst to, to some of our colleagues, but you've just got to continue on all of the tracks, I think, even if a little bit more slowly. Um, but for us as an institution, you know, pivot's not the right word. We've been on this long-term digital track. Last year, we made more business decisions long before we knew this was happening, that we're going to continue on that track. And I don't see any reason to pull back from that. When, particularly when you're engaging, you know, with your collections and trying to give people that view into them, when you're moving from having an on-site event of tens that turns into hundreds online or hundreds on-site that turns into thousands or tens of thousands, and they're all over the country or the world, no going back from yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that we found useful was, as I talked about, that narrowing of, you know, or, or closing in of your horizon, okay, and you started to realise that you were preoccupied with what was happening next hour, next day. You needed some antidote to that, and the leadership needed an antidote to it. So we commenced very early on a, a kind of a blue sky um, look around the world at what was happening when we thought this would go. And I can't tell you how useful it was to have our senior leadership, not through the organisation, because frankly, I don't think our staff could have um, handled us asking them to do that while they were trying to work through their jobs and their application of their jobs in completely different environments. But the senior executives started to say, what's happening globally? Where is this going to go in five years? And how do we think about almost the very long term? And if nothing else, it gave them some relief from um, where we were, but it has set them up also for that discussion to be generalised amongst the staff next year, when I think it will be useful and constructive as we sort of draw breath and move through into year two of this. Yeah, and I think Megan was going to talk about, you know, maintaining that continuity. Yeah. I think, I mean, you've talked about what's here and, and now and also the future, and Murray Louise, you also talked about the fact that you and your executive have never worked harder than you're currently working. And Rachel, you talked about too, the two tracks that you're now going down, both digital and in person. And I feel in a way when the pandemic started, we all had adrenaline. We thought, great, we'll just put 100% into this. We'll all get through this. It's now almost turned into a war of attrition. How do you maintain that sustainability of your staff when they're still working at 100 or 110% as young people say? Um, at a practical level, I'm having a week off next week. <laughs> <laughs> Very because, good. I'm pleased to hear Because yeah. it's true, you get tired. And I'm worried that in the not too distant future, I'm going to do or say something I really regret mm. because I'm tired. Mm. And I've done the same for my executive team. I've mm. said, look, you can't take a month off at the moment. Take a few days, take yeah. a week. Yeah. Um, and similarly further down, really encouraging people to take time out where they can, but being practical that you just can't have particularly a senior team out for mm. a long time at mm. the moment. I think that's really, really um, important. 
Um, I do think that sense of just wearing down of energy is is, is super, it's real. Mm. Um, but I also feel we have to remember here we are in Canberra, we're not health departments making decisions about people's lives or deaths. We're not Treasury making decisions about livelihoods. We are about feeding and nourishing the souls of the Australians around us. And that in itself feeds back in to how you feel about your work and how your staff do. We get amazing feedback, you would too, from your communities. So I feel as if there's something more replenishing us than mm. might be the case maybe in some of the big line agencies. Look, I think that the um, the thing that's really struck me um, about this year and, and is I, I think our organisations of whatever size we are, creative cultural organisations, um, I think change is actually good for us. And I think it's a risk because we always take on more than we can do. It's just the nature of our organisations and our sector. And I think that actually having a moment to really take stock genuinely, not, you know, just another strategic plan. I love the strategic plans. They're really important, but really go, hang on. There's this great phrase I love, um, which is called kill your darlings, because we all have our pet projects that we really, really love and we're quite invested in. And I think it's been a really good opportunity to kill some of those off, um, not because um, they were unsuccessful, quite the opposite, but actually we need to put our energy into something else. Um, and I think that's how you remain creative and vibrant and relevant and serve the communities that we're, we're existing to serve. I really think that there's an issue at the moment of just um, how we can take some of those learnings from the shutdown to go forward. So, you know, we still do the checking in every every meeting and, you know, how are you, what are you grateful for as a way of kind of just keeping in contact. I really learned in shutdown that I really like my own company. And I know that sounds really bizarre, but um, I think my life beforehand was just so busy. You know, I would have a running order of my life every day. You know, kids drop offs and sports and work and events and everything. And a lot of that just got taken away and most of it hasn't come back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really great gift. And knowing how to just have time to be still and read a book is, is a really valuable thing to take forward. And I think we're all better as an organisation at protecting things like the hours you work your well-being than we were before the lockdown. So I feel like there's some real positives that actually um, in some ways we're busier, but in other ways actually we're better off. Mm, I think that's right. I think in many ways it's forced us to see the human element of, of the workforce. You can't hide behind a Zoom call if, if your kids are, are running past. And so <laughs> it's forced us to think about well-being and how we support our staff where perhaps in the past that was hidden a bit more. I, I try not to think about this as being an interregnum somehow mm. and more about the way that what we're doing is recreating yeah. the way we work, our organisations are. So there's a lot of discussion about, well, we're in this phase of crisis and how can we, when we recover, when this is over and we recover, I just don't think that's what's going to happen. I think we should be thinking about that's the way we're organising our business. And I'm as interested about what we're doing and what we've done already that's taken forward, okay? Mm and using this as an opportunity really to apply design thinking or kind of prototyping in a very rapid period of change 
that will actually continue. Mm. That's um, that's a, a really powerful kind of um, closing remark. I, I can't believe how quick the time's gone. I've I really enjoyed hearing um, you know all your perspectives. Uh, I think. Uh, Marie Louise, you know, feeding and nourishing our souls. So thank you for, you know, um, continuing to guide these institutions and communities because um, it is really important. Your leadership stories today have been really, really powerful. So I'd like to, on behalf of IPA and the IPA Future Leaders Committee, um, thank you for your time today. I look forward to kind of walking through the halls and experiencing some of your events moving forward. So thank you. Thank you So there you have it, a conversation about the cultural institutions here in Canberra and how they have adapted to the challenges and opportunities of 2020. And we are now just weeks away from Content Group's GovComs Festival, which is a part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. We're delighted that IPA is a partner for the event, which will run for 24 hours from 10am on November the 17th. We launch in Canberra, and follow the sun featuring content across Australia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Europe, North America, and finally home via the Pacific Islands and New Zealand. And at the same time, on the same platform, our good friends at the Social Marketing School at Griffith University will be running 24 hours of free education. All up, there will be over 150 hours of content all directed at understanding how governments can more effectively communicate with citizens and stakeholders. So Google the GovComs Festival and sign up. There are now over 600 people registered, so we look forward to you joining them for this big event. Thanks again to IPA and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support for Work With Purpose. This program would not happen without the support of Caroline. Sunny, Sarah, and the team here at IPA, and Emma back at Content Group. So thank you so much for your great support and to the audience for coming back once again in such strong numbers. That's it for now. We'll be back next week, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Mm -hmm.